All right, good morning. Good morning. Let me ask you to get your Bibles. I want you to open with me to Genesis chapter 3. In our Sunday school hour, we're going to talk about the reality of the enemy's attack, and then during our worship service, I, I want to take you to Jesus. I want, I want you to leave here today saying, I want to run to Jesus, because he's the answer for all the battles that, that I face. But once you find your place in Genesis chapter 3, I want you to mark your place and just hold your Bible in front of you, whether it be your hard copy or your electronic copy. I want you to hold it in front of you, and then I want you to help me out here. I want you to get two numbers in your head. The first one should be pretty easy. The second one, for some of you, may take some work. So here's the first number to get in your head. The number of people who live in your house today. That was easy. Yes? That one shouldn't take long. For me, it's my wife and I and our dog now. So three of us, if we count Max. Uh, we've had him for seven months, our first dog ever in 32 years of marriage. Uh, he is wearing us out, <laughs> to, to say the least. All right, so that's the first number, the number of people in your house. Here's the second number I want you to get in your head. The number of copies of the Bible you have in your house today. The number of copies of the Bible you have in your house today. It's always fun for me to watch from this side because I can watch you in your mind going, all right, this room, there's one, this room, there's, there's one. How many would say by raising your hand, Chuck, we have more Bibles in our house today than we have human beings? Let me see your hands. All right, just hold them up a little bit. Look around. All right, you may take them down. Here's why I want you to think about that as we start today. I serve not only with Southeastern Seminary in North Carolina, but I also serve with the International Mission Board, and I have uh, a group of missionaries that, that I supervise, and basically what I do is I walk with them and uh, just encourage them and love on them and pray for them. Uh, but they serve around the world, and I can take you to places where I have been, where they serve, where folks don't have access to the Word of God like you and I do. More than 4 billion people in the world have little or no access to the scriptures, to the gospel. I can take you to places where they have just portions of the Bible in their language. I can take you to places where they have none of the Bible in their language. I can take you to places where they do not have a written language yet. And we're trying to figure out how to get the gospel to them. I remember years ago, my wife and I were in East Asia, and we were teaching in a place where uh, we, it was a little risky for the teaching, and so we had to make our way to a back room in a, in a, a, a factory, basically, to teach. And after I finished teaching, these young believers had one copy of the Bible, and they passed it from one person to the next, just reading one verse at a time, reading it aloud and passing it to the next person. And what I learned later on was they, th this one copy of the scripture in their language was so precious to them that they just stayed there reading long after I was finished teaching. I came back to our house in the United States and I began to look around our house and I can't, I don't know that I can number the number of Bibles we have in our house. And you know what? We have the entirety of God's word all of it from Genesis to Revelation in our language and in our hands 
and I can open it and teach it twice here today without threat on my life. The bottom line is this. You and I are really, 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 really blessed. Are, are we not? So we're not going to waste our time. Uh, we're going to get right into the Word and let the Word speak to us. And so go with me to Genesis chapter 3. I want to talk to you about how the enemy comes after us. Genesis 3 helps us to see several of those methods. I particularly want to focus on the reality of temptation and sin because the enemy always wants to lure us into sin. So let's, let's begin here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will what? Tell me. You will die. Is that pretty clear? You do what God told you not to do, and what will happen? You will, you will die. Watch what the serpent says in verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now we'll stop there and let's take a look at this text. Well, I want us to, I want us to see the enemy doing what the enemy often does. He sows false teachings among the people of God. He always wants to work his way into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by, by sowing seeds of false teaching. He always wants us to turn from God and choose to live our own lives. He always wants us to turn on each other. And we'll talk about all of those things. But here's the way I want us to think about temptation and the way the enemy comes after all of us every day of our lives. I want to paint a word picture for you here. So here's the picture. I want to draw a line right down the center of this worship center. So here's the line right here. This is what I will call the sin line. All right? So that's the sin line. All of you to my left, you are not in sin. All right? 
So you're good. Well, our sister just got proud there. Uh, and so uh, someone fell as we, as we watched. All of you to my right, you sat in the wrong place. You are in sin. Some of you more deeply than others, uh, including your pastor and his wife, I see there. All right, so we got the picture. There's the sin line. Some questions, some practical questions. Do we, those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, do we generally recognize where this line is? Yes or no? I think, I think we do. Now, part of our problem is this. We're living in a world that keeps moving the line or that says there is no line. But if we have the Holy Spirit of God in us and we have God's word in front of us, we have a sense of where the line is. Now, second question, how close do we often get to this line in temptation? Or if it's easier to answer it this way, how close do other people get to the line in, <laughs> in temptation? You know how close we get? We, get? we get right on it. And then we wonder why we fall. And why, do, why do we put ourselves right there? Well, I think there's some, some reasons for that. On one hand, we put ourselves right there because we think we can handle it. We think we can, we can fight off the lures of the devil on our own, which means we've already crossed the line into pride. But there's another reason I think we put ourselves right there, and that's this. We want to wring out of every temptation every ounce of fun we can get without really sinning. If we're honest, Lord, I don't want to sin, but I don't want to miss anything either. So I'm going to get as close as I can get and then trust you to stop me, God. And we wonder why we find ourselves in trouble. Now, next question. Do we know what we're going to experience if we cross the line? Do we know what it's like over here? We do, don't we? Why do we know that? Because we've all been there. And what do, we, what do we sense? Shame, conviction, guilt, embarrassment, frustration, anger, regret, maybe temporary pleasure. The Bible's very clear that it's temporary. It's only for a season. It brings long-lasting anguish. All right, so now help me. We know where the line is, yes? We know how close we get to the line sometimes. We also know if we cross the line, ultimately it's only going to bring anguish for those who are followers of Jesus. And yet, what do we do so often? We cross it anyway. We cross it anyway. How does, that, how does that happen? I want to give you some steps, some ways that the enemy lures us across the line. I uh, trust you just to write down some notes and consider, as, as you write these down, ask the question, where am I most vulnerable? So here's, here's a first step for the enemy. The enemy engages us in conversation. The enemy engages us in conversation. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we hear his voice like you're hearing my voice. 
Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear that we face three enemies. That's the subtitle of the book that Dr. Cook and I wrote. We face our own flesh, we face the world, and we face the devil. Now, of those three, according to the scriptures, our own flesh, the world, and the devil, which one is our biggest enemy? We are. We are our biggest enemy. Our flesh is our biggest problem. We wrestle against those things. What the enemy does is he builds on all of those things. Our fleshly desires, the world that makes sin look inviting, and he wanting to draw us in opposition to God and brings sin in front of us. And we have to make choices. Here's what he does for Eve. The text says, this is verse 1, he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Somehow he grabs her attention. He begins a conversation with her. That will ultimately lead to her succumbing to the temptation and sinning against her creator. What I want you to see is this. You see, if this is the sin line, we put ourselves right there. Quite often, our temptation doesn't begin there. It begins way over here where the enemy just says, let's talk a minute. Now, let me explain that to you. Help me out here again. Do we know often when our mind just begins to think in directions in opposition to God? Do we know when our mind begins to turn the wrong way? I, th I think we often do. Now, sometimes sin just hammers us. We, we erupt in anger. Things happen, and they happen so rapidly. It feels like we don't have control over those things. But there are an awful lot of times in our lives where we put ourselves in a place where we let our mind turn away from the things of God toward the things of the world, and we know when we're moving in the wrong direction. And we know that if we take one more step toward the sin line, we are like to do what? Cross it. Cross it. And that's what I want us to think about. I want us to think about those temptations that, that hammer away at our individual lives. And I want us to think about how do we recognize, wow, I need to stop this right here when the enemy says, let's just talk. Let me just turn your attention away from the things of God. Maybe you see this image on the television screen and the enemy says, hey, let that, let that image just linger in your head a minute. Or you get this unsolicited email that says you, you click on this link and it's going to take you in directions. You know you shouldn't go. And the enemy says, you know what? It's not going to hurt you. Go ahead and hit that link. Or there's somebody in your life that wounded you years ago, and you're, you're convinced. You're convinced. You let go of all of that pain. You let go of that bitterness. And, and, and yet that, that friend comes in the room, and the enemy whispers in your ear, don't you remember what she did to you? And he begins to raise that anguish again. He says, let's just talk. Let me just, let me just get your attention. Remember, the world always wants us to turn away from God, and so the world makes everything look luring. The enemy capitalizes on that, and he says, let's just, let's just look in a different direction. 
And I'm suggesting to you that most of us, if not all of us, know when we begin to think in the wrong direction. And my point is this. As soon as we recognize that we're leaning there, what must we do? We must turn and run to God. Because the longer we carry on a conversation with the devil, the more likely it is we're going to fall. It's really that simple. So I want you to recognize today, tomorrow, throughout this week, what are those moments when you know, wow, that's not godly. That thinking's not helpful. I can't chase that. I'm going to be in trouble if I don't halt my steps right here. And you decide, I'm not going to listen to the voice of the enemy. I'm not going to let him engage me in conversation. I'm going to run to God. So there's number one, the enemy engages us in conversation. Number two, the enemy wants us to doubt or to ignore God's word. The enemy wants us to doubt or to ignore God's word. Here's what God said to Adam. You eat from this tree and you will die. Here's what the serpent said to Eve. Look at verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. God said you will die. The serpent said, no, you won't. So what's the serpent doing there? He is saying to Eve, you don't have to worry about what God said because God didn't mean it anyway. Our God is not going to keep his word anyway. You can just ignore anything you heard from God because it's not truth anyway. And I want you to see how the enemy operates in that sense. If, if he grabs our attention over here and we begin to look in the wrong direction, we begin to rationalize in our own minds. Remember, our flesh is our biggest problem. We begin to convince ourselves that it's okay to cross the line. And what the enemy often does is he facilitates our rationalizations. And he does that most often with excuses that are in direct contradiction to God's word. I mean, let me illustrate that a little bit. Maybe, maybe you've heard this voice of the enemy. Go ahead and do it. Nobody will what? Tell me. Nobody will know or nobody will see. In fact, you've done it before and nobody knows. You've gotten away with it before and nobody saw. Go ahead and do it. Nobody will, nobody will know. Tell me what the Bible says to that. What does the Bible tell us about our God? He's, he knows all things. He sees all things. All things are bare to the eyes of God, according to the book of Hebrews. All things are bare to the eyes of God. So when the enemy says, go ahead and do it, nobody will know What's he saying about God's word? It's not true. It's not true. Even God won't see. Or maybe you've heard this voice. Go ahead and do it. It won't hurt you. In fact, one of the reasons it's tempting to you is because it's fun, at least temporarily. And you know it's not going to hurt you because you've done it before and it hasn't hurt you. So go ahead and do it. There won't be any consequences. And yet, what does the Bible tell us about that? We shall reap what we 
sow, and the soul that sins, it shall surely what? Die. Now, here's what the Bible says. We choose to live in rebellion against our God, and there are consequences for our choices. They may not always be immediate, but there are consequences for our choices. And we will eventually reap what we sow. But when the enemy says, go ahead and do it, it won't hurt you, here's what he's saying again, God's word is not true. Let me give you another voice that you might have heard. Maybe, maybe the enemy engages you in conversation, you're at least just thinking, you know you're leaning in the wrong direction, and the enemy says this, go ahead and do it just one more time. And you can always get right with God later, tomorrow, just one more time. Tomorrow's a new day. You can quit after you do it this time. And what's the problem with that biblically? When is the day of salvation? It's today. What do we not have promise of? Tomorrow. So when the enemy says, go ahead and do it just one more time, you can always get right with God tomorrow. Here's what he's saying. Bank on tomorrow coming, but God doesn't promise you that. And he says, just ignore God's word. Let me tell you one of the reasons so many church members, believers, wrestle and lose the battle of sin too many believers don't know God's word well enough to recognize the lies of the enemy. Now, you're here in, in Sunday school. You're here in small group time to study the word. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But you know what? The only way we recognize the lie of the enemy is what? We have to know the truth. And if we don't know the truth of God's word, we hear all these other voices, the voice of our flesh, the voice of the world, the voice of the enemy, and all of it makes it sound really good, and we don't know the truth of God's word to filter our choices through it, and it's no wonder we lose the battle. So I, ch I challenge you this morning, particularly because of where we started today, particularly because I assure you there are believers all over the world that would long to have more of the Scripture in their language, who are devouring whatever little bit they have, even when it's costly for them. Those of us who have such access to the Word, God is going to hold us accountable for that. And that means we have to learn it. We have to know it. We need to memorize it. And if we don't know it that well, when the enemy says just ignore God's word, we will ignore it because we don't know it in the first place. Does that, does that make sense? I'm just being as honest as I can be. The enemy engages us in conversation. He wants us to doubt or to ignore God's word. Here's, here's the third step the enemy does. The enemy directs us to what we're missing. The enemy directs us to what we're missing. 
Let me, let me again put this in the context of Genesis 3. Tell me, what did God provide Adam and Eve in the garden? What did he give them? Everything they would ever need, right? God gave them all they would need. He said, don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden, because if you eat from the tree, you will die. So when God puts the fence around the tree, if you will, it's not because he's just keeping something from them. It's because he knows if they eat from this tree, it will harm them. God gives us rules and standards and commandments because he loves us. And he tells them, don't eat from this tree. He gave them everything they would ever need. And in came the serpent. And where did the serpent direct Adam and Eve? To what? To the one tree that they could not have. In fact, look with me at the text. Look at what the serpent says. Look at verse 4 again of Genesis 3. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, here's what he says. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In essence, the enemy says this. God's just keeping this from you. So he knows if you eat from this tree, you will know good and, you'll be like him. Knowing good and evil. What kind of God is this that would put that in the center of this garden and not let you have it? And he directs them away from all the other blessings of God to the one thing that God said you cannot have. Now, I want you to think about how much sin is like that. Think about it. The sin of greed is what? What's greed? It's wanting something that I don't have, right? And Amy says, look what you're missing. What's coveting about? It's wanting what somebody else has. And the enemy says, look at what you don't have. What's lust about? You know what it is? It's wanting a person or a pleasure or an image that I don't have. And the enemy says, look at what you're missing. Why is, it, why is it that even among Christians, and I wish this weren't the case, but I've seen it even among believers, why is it that sometimes we will tear others down to get what we want? Sometimes it's because we want position and power and prestige and dollars that what? We don't have yet. And the enemy always says to us, look at what you have to forego if you choose to be faithful to God. Look at everything else the world gets to do that you don't get to do. And he paints the picture that Christianity is just giving up everything and he robs us of understanding the grace that God gives to us. And here's what happens. As you think about what sin is, watch, watch this with me. Adam and Eve could look around and see everything that God had given them. Here comes the serpent. They look toward the tree. They make a choice. And their choice is this. They will eat from the tree that God said do not eat from. 
And the picture that's really helpful to me is this. When they look at this tree and they choose to eat from this tree, at least temporarily, here's what they do. They turn their back on every other blessing that God has given them. And they decide at least for a moment that what the world offers to them and what the devil offers to them is more important to them than everything else God's given them. And that's, that's the essence of sin. When I choose to cross the sin line, here's what I'm saying. What the world and the devil offer me right now matter more to me than what God has given me. Does that make sense? So, so help me out here for a minute. Let's just brainstorm. Just brothers and sisters here in the room. I want you to, I want you to talk with me just single words. Just tell me some blessings that God has given us. You just rattle some things off for me. A job, good. Employment, what else? Family, Family. church, health, neighbors, Neighbors. good. Eternal life, food, peace, rest, freedom to do what we're doing. Forgiveness, mercy, grace, a roof over our head. We already said food on our table, gasoline in our car, a car, even if you do drive a 2002 Mercury Sable like I do, (laughs) to my wife's great regret, but how much God has blessed us, yes? And yet, when we stand at the sin line and choose to cross it, we're saying that none of that matters compared to this temporary action. And I don't know about you, but that at least gives me pause. It it at least makes me stop and think, how much does all of this really matter to me? In fact, I can even think back to... Uh, years ago, the first time I was in Israel, I was uh, 16, 17, a long time ago. Let's just say that. And we went to, we went to there are a couple of sites where uh, archaeologists think may have been the place where Jesus died. It's just not clear where, where it was. But this particular place, uh, there's a hillside there and a, a rock formation that looks like a skull. And some people believe that that's where... where Golgotha was. But what I remember early on, I hadn't been a believer but three years or so at the time. What I remember, and it's still the case, I was there a couple years ago and it's still there. Right in front of that rock formation in that place where now there are three trees planted at the top of this little hill was a smelly, busy, loud bus station. If you can imagine the, the diesel smell and the noise, the clanging of the engines, Again, I hadn't been a believer very long, but what struck me was, gosh, this may be the place where Jesus died. And look, all these people are just coming and going and coming and going and coming and going. And it's as if nothing important happened there. And as a young believer, I didn't understand that at all. Now... A long time ago, 
This week will be my 49th spiritual birthday. Now I look back and think, I don't like it, but I have to be honest and say sometimes I get so busy I drive right by the cross. And my guess is you do too sometimes. There's a, there's a reason, a number of reasons, but there's a reason that Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper and said, do this in remembrance of me. If he said, you do this so that you remember me, what must he have known about us? That we would forget it. That we would take even the cross for granted. And so I think about that. When temptation hits me, how much does the cross mean to me? How much do the blessings of God matter to me? The enemy is the one who directs us to what we're missing. The world that makes what we're missing look so inviting, as if it's a commercial in front of us saying, in the next 30 seconds, go get whatever you want. What's the first thing the enemy does? He engages us in what? Conversation. Second thing, he wants us to doubt or to ignore God's word. Third, he directs us to what we're missing. Here's number four. The enemy wants us to hide. The enemy wants us to hide. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 8. So it's a fascinating text. Strange in some ways. We'll read it and let's talk about it. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, you tell me, what's odd about that verse? What did they do? They hid from whom? From the Lord God. Now, what's the problem with that? You can't do that. But here's what I want you to see. When you and I choose to cross the sin line, we convince ourselves that even God doesn't know what's going on. Now, intellectually, we know better than that. But practically, we choose to live in this sin anyway as if God didn't even recognize it. And here's what happens. I want you to see how the enemy operates. If, if the sin line is right here, on this side of the sin line, he's the enticer. He wants to make sin look so inviting that we will cross the line. Then when we do cross the line, he becomes the accuser. Revelation 12 says he is the accuser of the brethren. So, so hear me out here. Watch what he does. Over here he says, go ahead and do it. God will still love you. We cross the line, and now what does he say? He changes his tune. God doesn't love you anymore. Not when you keep doing that. Or over here he says, go ahead and do it one more time. You can always get right with God tomorrow. We cross the line, and now what does he say? You're never going to win. God doesn't love you anymore. God's never going to use you again. You're never going to walk in victory. So you might as well just give up. And watch what he's doing. He wants to lure us across the sin line. Our flesh gives into that. We make that choice. 
So I'm not talking about, and some of you in this room will understand this terminology, I'm not talking about Flip Wilson theology. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, I tell my young students that. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, Flip Wilson theology, the comedian, as Geraldine said, the, the devil made me do it. That's not what I'm talking about. We make the choices across the line. But then the enemy changes his tune, and he who wants to lure us into sin now beats us up for it. So now we're, we're on this side of the sin line. We're hiding among the trees, and the enemy says, God will never use you again. God doesn't love you anymore. You're never going to wind up in victory. And so we buy those lies, and we let the sin become a stronghold for us, and we choose just to stay in the darkness. And here's what the enemy says to us then. Whatever you do, don't come out of the trees. Don't confess it to anybody. Because look at what it might cost you. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you your witness. It might cost you your position. It could. It could cost you your family. There are consequences to our sin. And the enemy says, look, the way you avoid all the consequences is you just stay in the darkness. You just stay in the hiding. And if you stay in the hiding, then you never confess it, you never repent. Let me just say to you this morning, if, you're, if you are living on this side of the sin line, in whatever area of your life, And the enemy's beating you up while he's also saying to you, don't be honest with anybody. I don't want the enemy to win in your life. What did James tell us to do? We are to confess our sins to one another. Yes? Now, does that mean I should take this headpiece off and we should pass it around the room? No. For multiple, one, we don't have time. Uh, and two, I don't, I don't think the standard there is we confess everything to everybody, but every one of us had better have somebody who knows us well enough that they can read our eyeballs when we lie to them. Somebody who forces us out of the darkness that we confess our sins one to another that we might be healed. It's the enemy. It's the enemy who is saying to somebody here today, I don't doubt no matter what Chuck says, you just stay in the darkness. Because that's what the enemy wants. He wants us to hide. So he engages us in conversation. He says, don't worry about what God's word says. Go after what you're missing. If you cross the line, stay in the darkness. Just hide in the darkness. Then here's the next step in the process. The enemy wants us to blame somebody else. The enemy wants us to blame somebody else. Here's, here's the picture. Adam and Eve hid. God came looking for them. Not because he didn't know where they were, but because he's drawing them out. He said, Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden. I was naked and ashamed, so I, I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what did Adam say, gentlemen? This woman you gave me. I love asking that question in local church because men who can't quote another verse in the whole Bible know that one. This, this woman you gave me. You know, what, you know what Adam does? He blames God ultimately. This woman you gave me. Had you not put this woman in my life, we wouldn't be in this mess. This woman you gave me. God looked at Eve and said, what is this that you have done? And what did she do? The serpent deceived me and I ate. See, here's what the enemy still says to this day. If you choose to come out of the darkness, either because you just choose to be honest with somebody or you are caught, either way, at a minimum, blame somebody else. If you have to come out of the trees, at least cast the blame on somebody other than yourself. I've been in full-time ministry for 42 years, been a seminary professor for 27 years. I can write a book on the excuses I've heard over, over the years. Dr. Hollis, you don't get it. If you knew the pressure that I'm under, 